0: You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. Good morning. My name is Joe Gill, and I am one of the pastors here at City Church. I am blessed with four beautiful children, ages 6 to 15. I have three girls and one boy. Boy was born third, my little comrade in arms. Uh, But what that means is that For a long time now, the vast majority of the TV time in our household is occupied with children's programming. Uh, And for the first five, six years of that, it was all little girls' children's programming. So I know all about Peppa Pig, and I know about Sarah and Duck and Strawberry Shortcake. Now, my boy, he started getting older, so now we start getting some... Some uh, grosser and grittier content in there, like uh, you know, Phineas and Ferb, and Milo Murphy's Law, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, It's it's good, Um, gentlemen. I've I've actually come to kind of appreciate all the children's programming. And guys, don't judge me. My Little Pony has has its moments. It really does. But one of the shows that my kids like to binge now and then, because, of course, everything's streaming now, so you, know, you don't just wait around for an episode and then wait till the next day like we used to in ye olden days. Uh, but one of the shows my kids like to binge now and then is Disney's The Lion Guard. Has anybody seen that one? Got Disney's The Lion Guard, a few. Okay. So The Lion Guard, it's, uh, it's a story that takes place after the events of The Lion King Uh, Simba is uh, in charge of Pride Rock now, and he's a dad. He's got kids of his own. And um, the show is mainly about Simba's son, Kion, who has been commissioned to protect the Pride Lands. And he assembles a team, and they go about taking care of problems and and doing all kinds of cool stuff. But the power behind Kion and the whole team is what the show calls The Roar. And this is a special ability that is bestowed just on Kion. And it's when when there's a, a real crisis and he's really got to take care of a big problem, he can use this roar. And when he does that, all of the past kings that came before him also roar through him, and so it 's this powerful thing it has the the power to literally blow bad guys away uh, as if by hurricane force winds but it 's kind of a a nifty, fantastical illustration of the power of a king 's authority and we've we 've seen now how Nehemiah, he's he's a man that is full of compassion for God's people. He is deeply concerned over the welfare of Jerusalem. And now he has a royal commission. He is a man that is sent by a king. And I'm not exactly just talking about Artaxerxes, Because if you notice, when you read the first chapter of Nehemiah, towards the end of his prayer, he's talking to God, and his confidence is in God, and he says, please grant me success today with this man. He knew that the king of Persia was still just a man, and he knew that the heart of this king was like channeled water, in the hand of the Lord. And so when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem as a man commissioned, he knows he comes, yes, he has the authority of the king of Persia, and there's benefit to that. But even more, what really gives Nehemiah his courage and his boldness is that he knows he comes on the authority of the throne of heaven. Now... In this text today, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, Nehemiah, he has been traveling. He's come from Susa. He's coming in for a landing. Uh, he's, he's, he's already had the, the challenge of meeting with the king, and that was, that was stressful enough. But now he's coming in, and he's going to find out what sort of challenges on the ground are waiting for him that will dog the entire project. And there are two primary challenges that he has to deal with. The first challenge that faces Nehemiah is introduced in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, I went to the governors of the region west of Euphrates and gave them, the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. And then verse 10 says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. When it says the the region west of the Euphrates, other translations will call it the province beyond the river. This was actually a proper name for a region that included um, a number of places, Judah and Samaria and Ammon on the other side of the Jordan and other places, you know, north and south. That, That was all a region called the province beyond the river or here the region west of the Euphrates. And Nehemiah comes and gives these governors his letters of authorization. And the scriptures give us some important information about these guys. We have their names. It says something about their heritage. And then it says something about their hearts. Who were Sanballat and Tobiah? Well, we don't know a ton about them, but from the details that we have here, we can kind of form a, a sort of contour picture. Both Sanballat and Tobiah, they, they kind of had some ties with, with the Jews and the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, but they also had influences that were foreign. And so these two men represent a, a corrupted or uh, mixed kind of worship. Sanballat's name, Sanballat, that's not a Jewish name. That was of foreign origin. It means uh, sin or the moon god of Haran. It meant sin gives life. But at the same time, Sanballat, he had a couple of sons and he gave them Jewish names. They had uh, what they call Yahwistic names. But that just basically means that the end of their name had the syllable Yah at the end of it, like Isaiah. Um, And uh, similarly for Tobiah. Now, Tobiah himself had a Jewish name. It's possible that Tobiah came from people who came back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. There were a group of people who returned with Zerubbabel. They were descendants of a prior Tobiah, and they were excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't prove their their proper lineage. So there might have been some animosity there with Tobiah. But he's called an Ammonite. And We're not certain that he was actually Ammonite in his heritage, but he was a governor over the province of Ammon. And as soon as Israelites heard the word Ammonite, they would remember the history before the exile because Ammon was a rival to Israel and Judah. They had all kinds of trouble and harassment from the Ammonites. These men were, in a sense, a kind of false shepherd. Again, they, they both had family ties to the priests in Jerusalem at the time, and they were enjoying favors and benefits off of that. They were taking advantage of it. These men hated God's people. There's a stark contrast here. In chapter 1, we see a picture of how much Nehemiah loves the people of God. He's 800 miles away in Susa, and he gets news about the troubles of Jerusalem, and it breaks the man. These guys, they live next door to Jerusalem, and they probably exercise some, maybe even illegitimate, influence there. And they hate these people. They don't care for the Israelites in Jerusalem and Judah. They are perfectly happy for Jerusalem to be vulnerable, exposed, open to harassment and exploitation. They were doing exploitation. They liked keeping Jerusalem weak. And so when Nehemiah arrived, he rocked their boat. The the word says that they were upset, they became displeased when they heard that someone, it didn't matter who it was, when they heard someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites. Because it's possible even that Sanballat, he was the governor in Samaria, which was an area to the north of Judah. Uh, It's possible Sanballat, had hopes that that Judah would be added to his jurisdiction so there was political ambition there as well and all of this now their their ambitions their favors their benefits that they were getting by taking advantage all of this was being jeopardized by the arrival of this man Nehemiah so that was challenge number 1 that Nehemiah met when he arrived in the province beyond the river and Part of the part of the plight of Jerusalem, Judea, the, the province of Judea at this time was small, okay? Um, you're talking about an area comparable to, if you go to uh, the Jersey Shore, Avis area, and then east to Muncie, and then north about to Trout Run. That was about the size of, of Judah at the time. It was basically Jerusalem and suburbs of Jerusalem. And this little piece of land is surrounded by more or less hostile areas and peoples and governors under the authority of the Persian throne. Now, in verse 11 here of Nehemiah 2, we have what happens when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. It says, after I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days... Verse 12 says that I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. Nehemiah came in quietly. He didn't come in with fanfare. I mean, he did have, he had a, and he didn't ask for this. This was Artaxerxes' idea because I think Artaxerxes liked him a lot. He had a, Royal military security detail. But he didn't come in, you know, blowing trumpets saying, I'm here to restore Jerusalem. No. He was the newly appointed governor in Jerusalem, but he came in quietly. And there are some very important practical reasons that he might have done that. And just as a quick aside, uh, let's note that when we... Are commissioned and called by God. That does not negate the need for practical considerations. There's nothing inherently unspiritual about planning and preparation. And one of the things there's a number of admirable traits that we see in Nehemiah: his compassion, his trust in God. He's a man of prayer. He is. He is an experienced man of the royal court. He's a diplomat. He's a man of wisdom. And we see Nehemiah's wisdom here when he arrives in Jerusalem. It doesn't say exactly why he just kind of hung around for three days. But there's a couple of reasons that are certainly not beyond imagination. He might have taken a little bit of a rest. Just like Ezra did. Ezra took three days after he arrived in Jerusalem. That was an 800-mile, two-month trip from Susa to Jerusalem as you go all the way through the Fertile Crescent because you don't want to go through the desert. He probably cooled his jets a little bit. There is a time for rest. But also, Nehemiah... He probably grew up in Persia. I mean, it took him years to be accepted into the royal court, to become the, cup, the king's cupbearer. That was not a light thing. To be the cupbearer to the king, that was one of the most trusted positions. He was close to King Artaxerxes, he had tremendous influence with the king. He probably grew up in Persia. He's probably never even seen Jerusalem. So one of the things that he likely would have been doing during these three days is getting familiar with the city and making contact with the important people that he would have to be working with. Again, practical considerations. They're not unspiritual. They're not leaning on the arm of the flesh. One of my favorite analogies for that is a farmer. You know, a farmer he plants seed. He trusts God for the crop. The farmer doesn't make the seeds grow. None of the things that the farmer does guarantees that he will have a good crop. But if he doesn't do that work, plowing and the fertilizing and the watering, he can guarantee he probably won't have a good crop. And it's not because he makes the seed grow. He still has faith in God that the seed will grow. But there's work that must be done. But going forward, after Nehemiah had met with Sanballat and Tobiah and been introduced to the first major challenge for the work, he now had the second major challenge. Sanballat and Tobiah, they were false shepherds because governing authorities are, in a sense, shepherds. Nehemiah now, he arrives as the new governor of Jerusalem. He is a shepherd. He has to shepherd these people. And they are a demoralized people. We said that Judah at this time was a fairly small little area, and it's surrounded by bigger, bully territories. But also, they were demoralized because of waiting. It's been 140 years since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and the walls. And the people of Israel have been waiting for the fulfillment of great and mighty promises of God. Several of the prophets talked about God's plans for restoring Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 65 Verses 17 through 19 say, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 10 and 11, they say, This is what the Lord says. In this place which you say is a ruin without people or animals, that is, in Judah's cities and Jerusalem's streets, that are a desolation without people, without inhabitants, and without animals there will be heard again the sound of joy and gladness, the voice of the groom and the bride and the voice of those saying, give thanks to the Lord of armies for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever as they bring thanksgiving sacrifices to the temple of the Lord for I will restore the fortunes of the land as in former times. Finally, Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 They say, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. And these people in Jerusalem have been waiting decades for any of this to even begin to come to pass and materialize. They were discouraged. And their wall is broken down. Why is that such a problem? We aren't so familiar with that because most of our cities in our country, they don't have walls and they don't generally need walls. But walls were really important at the time. A wall was armor for a city. How would you feel going into battle in jeans and a t-shirt? or skating out onto an ice hockey rink in pajamas without having any protective gear. For one thing, people are going to make fun of you, and that's going to be demoralizing, but also you are exposed to the potential of severe injury. And this was what it was like for a city to be without a wall. The wall was protection. Without the wall, any roving band of marauders could just wander in and make trouble, hurt people, take things. And so these people are discouraged from waiting. They're demoralized because they don't have a wall. And the fact that this is a ruined city, that it was destroyed by a king of Babylon, and it's been laying like this for a century and a half, they are the object of ridicule all over the area. So Nehemiah has this now as a challenge. He's got an external challenge from the enemies of God's people. He has an internal challenge as a shepherd. He has to do something with the demoralized and discouraged hearts of the people themselves. And so it's really not wise for him to just show up and say, we're going to rebuild, because what are the people probably going to do? Probably the same thing that most of the Israelites did when Moses showed up. Yeah, sure. Whatever you say, buddy. So he needed a plan. He needed to be able to show these Israelites at least two things, that he was competent to lead, he was a man with a plan, and that God was behind him. So that's why the stopping for three days, and that's why the secret outing after dark with an inconspicuous group of companions to go and have a look at the walls. He needed to know what's the nature of the task? What is the extent and the scope of the damage? How are we going to approach this work? You know, he was, probably, he was probably thinking about all these things during the four months that he was praying before he met with Artaxerxes. He's probably been thinking about all this stuff during the two months that he had been traveling to get to Jerusalem. And now he's sizing up the situation, practical considerations, using wisdom. He's not just rushing in. He's being circumspect. He's taking a look. He's making a plan. And so when Nehemiah disclosed his intention to the people of Israel in verses 17 and 18, says, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And he says, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And then we see the fruit of his leadership. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Nehemiah showed leadership and his shepherd's heart in several ways here. We already know Nehemiah is deeply committed by a love for the covenant people of God. He've lo- he has loved them from afar, and now he's come from the royal court to meet them where they are at. He owned their disgrace. He didn't come and distinguish himself from them as if he was just a higher up who's coming to just fix it all up. He included himself with them. You see the trouble we are in. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. He gave them a definite call to action. He didn't just come and say, we have problems, let's do something. It wasn't ambiguous. Let's rebuild the wall. And then he shared with them the confidence that he had in God. The story of how God had moved upon the heart of Artaxerxes and authorized him to come and do this thing. And then once again, toward the end of the passage, Sanballat and Tobiah, and another of their cronies, Gisham the Arab, they all show up, and now, it's in, in the first part, it just said they were upset. Now they're going to do something about it. And their opposition will intensify as the story progresses. But they're going to start with mockery, probably because that's been working so far. And they... They show up, verses 19 and 20. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gishem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now pause there. They knew better. Nehemiah had given them letters from Artaxerxes, when he arrived, they had read the letters. They probably knew who Nehemiah was, the king's cupbearer. They saw the security detail that was sent with Nehemiah. They know Nehemiah is here on the authority of the king. These words are not for Nehemiah, they are for the people. Because If you go back into the book of Ezra, and I believe it's in chapter four, <clears throat> yeah, it was. When the temple was being rebuilt, uh, some of them were also starting to work on the walls along with it at that time. But when that temple was being rebuilt under Zerubbabel, some of the enemies of Judah they sent a letter to the king of Persia and badmouthed them told on them, said, these people are rebuilding this city and they're going to revolt. And the king of Persia then, and I believe it was Artaxerxes, he sent a decree requiring construction to be stopped, to be halted. And the people in Jerusalem will remember this. So this is a familiar scene because they're starting to rebuild and these Bad dudes from around start saying, hey, are you guys rebelling against the king? Oh, that had to have had barbs. And you know they felt it. And that would have discouraged them. And that was their strategy to begin with. Because if they could successfully sap the strength of the people's hands once again, it wouldn't matter how solid Nehemiah's plans were. That wall's not going up. So Nehemiah needed to respond decisively to this. And he did. Verse 20. First he had given them letters when he arrived. Now I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. And this is interesting because, again, we see where Nehemiah's confidence really lies. Because they say, "Are you rebelling against the king?" And of course, they mean Artaxerxes. But Nehemiah, in his reply here, he completely bypasses that. He ignores it. He makes no mention whatsoever of Artaxerxes. He goes straight to the higher authority, God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. And then, to add insult to injury, Nehemiah categorically excludes these men from the community and the project. He says, we, his servants, will start building. The implication, of course, being, you are not his servants. And then he says the quiet part out loud. You have no share, no right, no historic claim in Jerusalem. He denies all of their pretended rights as the new governor in town. Now, <clears throat> we are not the Israelites in Jerusalem. We are not Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. We don't share exactly the same circumstances as they do. But even though they were building Jerusalem because they believed in the promises of God, these promises, in an important way, still remain to be fulfilled. I would encourage you at some point later to go back to Isaiah chapter 65 and read further in that chapter because Isaiah really gets into some pretty amazing descriptions of the restored Judah and Jerusalem and what it will look like. And we come to realize, well, that wasn't really quite fulfilled at the time. In Revelation chapter 21... Verses one through four. I'm going to read this and uh, listen and see if you if you hear anything familiar. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people's, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That sounds a lot like Isaiah 65. New heavens. New earth, past events no longer remembered. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard. These are still promises awaiting a future fulfillment. We are trusting God for the fulfillment of the same promises that Nehemiah and the Israelites were. Five centuries after Nehemiah There was another man who came weeping over Jerusalem. But he was not weeping over Jerusalem in physical ruin. He wept over Jerusalem because it was a spiritual shambles. We're talking about Jesus. This was another man who had left a royal court. He came and identified himself with a despondent people served in sacrificial love under authority from his father's throne. Christ is the ultimate Nehemiah. But we too are... Kind of little Nehemiahs. Sometimes, sometimes we're more like the Israelites who were in Jerusalem. But in a way, we also kind of reflect Nehemiah himself. Because we are also called and commissioned by God to do a work. Acts chapter 17 verse 30 Says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. That's a royal decree. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, because he has the authority. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That was a royal decree. Nehemiah didn't actually have a lot more than you and I do. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't an Elijah prophet who showed up to Nehemiah and said, Thus saith the Lord, you are going to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Nope. He had a heart that loved God's covenant people. He had a heart of prayer, of repentance. He had a heart of wisdom. He deeply desired, he had had a burden that he said that God had laid upon his heart to benefit Jerusalem. And he had a remarkable providence that convinced him that God was behind him. You and I can have callings in our own lives. We can have all of those things. So, how do we go about building then? We build first by telling the truth. We are building now a spiritual Jerusalem, a spiritual house for God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22 say, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So, first off, evangelism. Going out, telling people about the gospel, just like our mission statement of City Church to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how we... As true spiritual Israelites, build the new Jerusalem. That's how we are doing the work. But also by defending the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, say, Although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The war for the world is a truth war. It's always been a truth war. It was kicked off by a lie with the serpent in the garden of Adam and Eve. And lies and deceit have been the primary force advancing the kingdom of darkness. And we fight it with the truth by defending the truth. One of the ways that the church, the New Jerusalem, um, one of the ways that it loses its walls is compromise. Sanballat and Tobiah, they were forces of compromise. Sanballat Sanballat probably came from the foreign peoples that the Assyrians brought in after they deported the northern kingdom of Israel. And so there was a lot of syncretism, religious syncretism, That happened there because when that happened and the foreign peoples were brought in, uh, many of them adopted the worship of Yahweh, but they didn't abandon their other gods. They just kind of put Yahweh up on the shelf along with the rest. So theirs was an impure worship. And this is very much like the relativism that is pressed upon Christians, and upon the church. The greatest offense that you can ever give to a postmodern culture is to claim that there is a truth and you know it. But truth is by its very nature exclusive. When you pull up to a highway and you look both ways... There's either a semi coming or there's not. It's not both. People may want us to deny objective truth. But when the rubber meets the road, nobody actually lives like that. You know why? Because it's not their world. It's God's world. And that's how he designed his world to work. Reality always wins. At one point, sooner or later, you're going to run into it. And so, a, a well-known and very able preacher of the gospel has said, and they are wise words, it is the most loving thing you can do for a person is to tell them the truth We are responsible before God to be truth tellers. Telling the truth in love but it is not love. It is not kindness to perpetuate people's lies that are greasing the skids for their descent into hell. That's not kind. We are commissioned To build, we do that by telling the truth and defending the truth. And one of the things that that's going to require is for us to have the courage to stop being so nice and start being good. There's a difference. As little Nehemiahs, Nehemiah, he honored god he served god from the place where god had placed him so as you go about seeking to tell the truth and defend the truth and stand for the truth what are the spheres of influence where god has placed you that's where you begin just like nehemiah began from where he was at and then when they built the walls as we will will read later Everybody worked on the part of the wall that was close to their house. They all went just across the street or wherever they were. They went to the nearest part of the wall and they did their work there. So, where has God placed you? We all have different spheres of calling, different spheres of commission. Are you a father? Are you a mother? Have you been given spheres of influence in the workplace? Are you on a school board? Do you participate in other areas of local government? There are all kinds of different places where God has stationed us. And if we have if we have the love of the covenant people of God, the love of his church, and we make ourselves people of prayer, and we seek God for wisdom, then Christ, the ultimate Nehemiah, can direct us in building the walls. And we can do it with courage and boldness, just like Nehemiah did, because we have our confidence in the word of the king. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, and then 28 to 31. Jesus was talking to his disciples about the ways that they would have to tell the truth and defend the truth, and the hardships and the opposition that they were going to run into. And he gave them these words of encouragement A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Beelzebul, for those of you who don't know, at the time, it was a name for the devil. So if they start calling you the devil... Because of your defense of the truth, take heart. You know you stand with Christ. And he said then, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't be afraid of people who can Do no worse than send you to meet your Lord. And finally, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. It is his world and he's in charge, regardless of what the circumstances suggest. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God was with Nehemiah when he stood before Sanballat. God was with Nehemiah when he stood with the people in Jerusalem. God was with Nehemiah when he gave his strong rebuttal to the enemies of God's people. And God will be with us as he has called and commissioned each of us in the places where he has set us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In the city of Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, please consider all of the threats and the opposition and the persecution that your people must face and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of his son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.